Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? One of my favorite things to do on this podcast is interview people who come from a wildly different worldview than I do, and yet find overlap, find areas of common agreement. This is part of choosing truth over tribe. It's saying, look, we might be in what appear to be different tribes, but there is truth. There are areas of mutual agreements. And on today's episode, I'm going to have Jonathan Rausch. Now, if you don't know about him, he worked at the Brookings Institute. He began his career as a journalist and has since become one of America's leading thinkers. Jonathan is a gay man who lived through the gay civil rights movement starting in the 80s and 90s and saw it develop to what it is in the present. He's also an atheist, and yet he's willing to have interesting conversations around these topics. He recently published an article called Taking Back the Transgender Moment from the Extremist, where he explores as a liberal, as a gay man, whether the way we're handling transgenderism is helpful or whether it's going to end up hurting the cause of actual transgender people in the long run. We're going to start the episode by talking about that, but then our conversation will quickly shift to his latest book, The Constitution of Knowledge. And we're going to explore a really seminal question, especially around the issue of transgenderism, which is how do you know things? I mean, how do you know that a man is a man or that a woman is a woman? These are fundamental questions that we have to come to some consensus on if we're going to live in a society with one another. Let's hop in. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today, John. I'm very happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I've been reading your work for a long time, and I recently read your article, Walking the Transgender Movement Away from the Extremist. And I have to say, I was honestly a little bit surprised that you wrote this. You're obviously a sexual minority, and you understand what can come when you have these internecine battles and how people can militarize them against others in the movement. And so I guess I just want to start with, why did you feel the need to write this article? I stayed away from the whole transgender debate very deliberately for a long time. First of all, I am a white cisgender gay man, so I'm from a different neck of the woods. Second is I wasn't really sure what I thought about a lot of these issues. They're hard. You know, things like women's sports, for example, hard to figure out what to do there. And a third thing is that I just wasn't sure I had the credibility in that world. But I also remembered how in the 1990s, I was one of a group of openly gay and lesbian people who were not left wing and did not believe in tearing down bourgeois society or ending capitalism. We didn't think abortion should be part of the gay rights movement. And we fought back and we actually won back the movement from a lot of left wing extremists that were dominating it. And I think that's how we won marriage and military service and the other things we really needed. 
So I saw the same dynamic happening now in trans world, where what I think a lot of ordinary trans people want is just to be able to live life in a good way and a way that recognizes who they are. But this whole additional agenda, very academic and very extreme kind of agenda about what's called genderqueer had come in and taken over. And I kind of felt you know, if I didn't speak up now that I might regret it later. It's really interesting. You know, for people like me who are millennials, we grew up when marriage was the main debate and we saw Obergefell v. Hodges. And so that's our context. And so what you're describing in the 90s, when you're saying that there were more extremist left wing leaning groups that were trying to kind of dominate the movement. I remember the first time I heard this from Andrew Sullivan, actually, it, it surprised me. And so could you just explain a little bit more from that past for those of us who, you know, we're not super literate in the history of the gay rights movement. Well, that's interesting. Just tell me for a minute, what surprised you about that? He had a recent conversation with Barry Weiss. And in that conversation, they were discussing this. And he was making the point that when he came out and advocated for gay marriage, the people who were most responsive and even attacked his position weren't coming from the far right saying, how dare you want to get married? A lot of it was coming from the far left within his own movement saying, we want nothing to do with that system of marriage. That's not what it means to be gay. And that idea that there was someone coming from the farther left was new to me. And I'm guessing it's going to be new to a lot of our listeners. That's interesting. You know, that's the world I grew up in for very good reasons, understandable and important reasons. The gay and lesbian rights movement, civil rights movement, as it was then called, that was before LGBT and, and all of that, um, was led by people who were pretty radical because those were the people who had the courage to come out and do the hard work. And all respect, all deep honor to those people. The greatest of them was, in fact, libertarian, Frank Kameny, not a left winger at all. But so it was understandable that the movement would be led by people who were pretty radical in nature and really thought American society was oppressive and that the last thing that gay and lesbian people should be doing is reaffirming the bourgeois capitalist norms of society, including norms like, you know, settling down with one person and marrying. They thought that was not really something to be encouraged. And they thought military service? I mean, really? Come on. Why would you want to do that? So. The big change came in the 90s because grassroots gay people and lesbian people wanted to serve in the military and wanted to be able to get married. It's super important if your partner has AIDS to be able to get in the hospital room. We wanted to raise and mentor children. So the agenda kind of had to be kind of yanked back into the world of ordinary life of people who really just wanted to give back to their community. And that agenda is kind of a conservative agenda. Now, the thing that you said, Patrick, that's not right is that opposition came mainly from the gay left because it was even more fierce from the anti-gay right. They thought we were recruiting children and subverting marriage and all of that. So the gay center, people like me, we got it from both sides. But, you know, that's okay. Something like that, I think, needs to happen now in trans world. Trans moderates, they're out there. They're out there in large numbers. They need to take back their movement because the radicals who are running it now have some ideas that are bad, wrong, and counterproductive. 
Well, that was one of the things that resonated with me in your article. Again, I have no authority really to speak on this topic, but the friends I do have who are trans do not fit by and large into these radical categories. In fact, they resist a lot of what they see happening out there. And I thought, well, this is just some weird thing. I'm a pastor and the kinds of people that I'm going to know are going to be maybe fringe to their own movements. Maybe that's why I was experiencing this. But in your story, you shared about a friend who, like you said, is more of a trans moderate. So maybe share a little bit about that friend and what it is you want and maybe that friend wants for the trans movement? Well, that's Giselle Donnelly. And she is one of the world's great defense analysts, actually. She's a trans woman. And I wanted to be really careful when I wrote about this to introduce a trans voice, not my voice. To emphasize this isn't about my opinion and my recommendation to trans people. I don't really see why they should care a fig about what I have to say, but they should care about the many trans Americans who are not on board with the radical genderqueer agenda and who are feeling not only ill-served by it, but kind of being taken for a ride, used as a kind of social battering ram for an agenda they don't agree with. What would you say that agenda is? Well, my article, I tried to distinguish it with four propositions. And I don't know if you want to walk through all of that now. I've got them right here. I'll read them. Then you can tell me maybe what you were thinking with them. So you said, number one, these are the claims of what you called radical gender ideology that you're, I think, disputing, if I've understood your article correctly. You said, number one, trans women are women and trans men are men. No difference, full stop. Number two, second claim, human gender and sex are social constructs and are not a binary, but on a continuum. So concepts like male and female are relative and subjective. Number three, gender and sex are chosen identities and an individual's declared choice can never be doubted or challenged. Lastly, number four, denying or disputing any of the above is violence. Yeah, so gender ideology is complicated and messy and Actually, people who've studied it say it's quite incoherent. So it's a little bit hard to nail down, but that was my effort to say, here are four things that are characteristic of this ideology, which are not characteristic of how mainstream trans people think about themselves. To take the first one, trans women are women and trans men are men, no difference, full stop. Trans people like Giselle will say, that's not true. She says, I am a biological man, but a trans woman. And her view is that she earned that distinction. I mean, she actually had to put in the work to become a trans woman. So she wants that designation trans. And also she wants the kind of medical care and science that'll cater to people like her who are male-bodied biologically. So she has no interest in obliterating the distinction between a trans man and a male, biological male, or a trans woman, and a biological female. If you take the second, human gender and sex, and sex are social constructions, and not a binary, but on a continuum, a sliding scale, that may be a defensible position with gender, with social norms around behaviors of male and female. But it's not true at all with regard to biological sex. We're a sexually dimorphic species. There are a few very small, very rare exceptions to that, but they actually prove the rule. So it's just scientifically wrong to say that sex is on a spectrum and there are all kinds of things, because they're not. The third, gender and sex are chosen identities. So here the notion, again, it's gender and sex. I think to some extent we do choose our gender behaviors, how we present, but we don't choose our sex. We're born with that. 
transgender people I know are completely willing to say that. They have no problem with that. In fact, the meaning of transgender is that you're trying to move away from that and toward the other gender. But that stops making sense if you don't have these two fundamental categories. But the notion here is that simple self-declaration, just the act of saying, I am a man, I am a woman, I am, as one person said, a young person, a demigirl, that I can just announce the sex that I want to be. That's also empirically false. And then the last is, to me, the most troubling. I'm a pluralist. I believe in toleration. I believe in robust disagreement, especially on morally difficult issues. But genderqueer ideology tends to say, if you disagree with me on any of these things, if you even question these things, then you're a transphobe, you're committing an act of violence. And on that basis, unfortunately, we're seeing some bullying, some harassment, some campaigns to suppress and censor alternative points of view. We tried not to do that in the gay rights movement in the 90s. We tried to understand that they're going to be difficult issues and that we had to win people over. We couldn't just shut them down. So going back to the gay movement, if you were to maybe imagine a different reality where the gay rights movement wasn't able to pry it away from the extremists, they kind of stayed in control of the discourse, what do you think would have been the future of the gay civil rights movement? And what do you think that might show us about the trans moment that we're in right now? You know, that's a great question. and. I'd have to think about it to give you an answer, because I can imagine several different ways that it would have gone. One is that in the end, it wouldn't have mattered, and the American people would have come out in in pretty much the same place, because I think you may disagree, but I think same-sex marriage was the good and right answer, and that it was good for gay people and straight people and society and marriage. So we might have come out there anyway. On the other hand, we might have seen the agenda go in different directions. We might have seen much more backlash. We might have seen more gay people who were not radical, which were the majority. 25% of gay people voted for George W. Bush in 2000. A lot of people, in any case, were not on board with the kind of radical agenda. And we might have seen it might have taken years longer to reach where we got today because Society would have been fighting the notion that if you're pro-gay, it means, I don't know, you're anti-capitalist and pro-choice and all of these other things. I mean, it's a long way of saying I don't really know. Well, that's kind of where I was headed in a different conversation. I heard someone communicate something that really struck me at the time. They said, look, part of the reason why the gay civil rights movement worked so well was because we were asking for fundamentally conservative things. Like you said, we wanted to be married like other people. We wanted to serve in the military like other people. And if it had been a radical ideology that threw those things out, it would have been far harder for the average American to empathize with the situation of a gay person and to move forward with it. Yeah, I think that's right. The cultural left in the late 80s and on into the 90s believed, for example, that the whole idea of marriage and family should be undermined and rejected. You know, you just have a whole spectrum of relationships. They didn't believe in monogamy even as a goal for example. And that was an agenda which I think would have been rightly rejected by the American public. And unfortunately, the more modest and conservative agendas just you know, let us fit in, I think might have gone down the tubes with it. And that was kind of the question I wanted to ask. And I wonder if something similar is possible right now. I mean, for example, you just talked about the norms of family and 
I think about transgender children and what it means for them and their families that you have, you know, certain radical elements that want to help kids pull out or pull away from their families. And I'm sure the average trans person, though, would maybe make a different argument, which is no, I want them to be embraced and welcomed (laughs) and a part of their families. And so I do wonder if the point we're talking about here, really, like you said, applies in the trans moment, which is we need to have a kind of more conservative centrist approach to making common sense accommodations for everyday people. Would you say that's at the heart of what you want to see happen? I guess I'd put it a bit differently. Some of these issues just are really hard. Like, what do you do about the trans kid who's 14 and undergoing puberty? How do you deal with that medically, socially, emotionally? There is no analogy to that in gay world. There's no analogy really to the sports question that comes up, issues like Leah Thomas in gay world. Some of these things are just really, really hard, and they're going to be hard. So I think the way I put it, the emphasis would be that there is no alternative to having some pretty tough, pretty honest social and scientific and medical conversations about those things to figure them out. And it's going to take a little while. And what won't work is to squelch those conversations one way or the other, either because right-wing legislatures say, you can't even talk about this. You're a bunch of groomers if you bring it up, a terrible, terrible slur. Or because left-wingers say, you're a bunch of transphobes, you're a bunch of bigots, and you're causing young trans people to kill themselves if you bring it up. There is no alternative but to do some really hard work the next few years, scientifically and socially, to figure out these issues. And that's the part that starts to make me feel hopeless. I mean, it feels like we're in this extremist dialectic, like a discursive rage loop where we're pressing everybody who might even be more in the center further and further to the fringes because they're called names by the other side. And they look and they say, wow, okay, well, that's insane. Yeah. I, I'm a lot of things, but those words can't possibly describe me or my behavior. I'm chuckling because discursive rage loop is such a good term. <laughs> is that in the Bible? It's not. <laughs> is that what Jesus was preaching against the Pharisees? Yes, the Pharisaical discursive rage loops in Patrick 360. But it kind of was, wasn't it? It really was. And actually, if you look at some of the extremism that was pressing various Jewish movements apart, in our own context, you see the same thing happen. The difference is they didn't have social media algorithms that were not only forming them to become more rage-filled, but fomenting it. And that's the part that scares me on this issue. What you just said a second ago is so critical. It's like, we have to be able to talk about this. We have to be able to have a conversation. And it just leads me to the question of how is that conversation going to happen? How do we actually know? I mean, how could we as a collective society come to know what is true about gender, about male and female? I mean, what do you think is the path forward towards forming that knowledge? Well, it's the path of what I call liberal science, the constitution of knowledge, which is a a conversation where a lot of people bring different evidence and arguments. And then over time, we pit those against each other. We try to do it in a respectful, systematic way. We actually perform the experiments. We get better data, what happens to people over time, what the better medical protocol should be. And in our political system, we work through some compromises. In the issue of sports, there is no alternative to compromise. So the right answer is going to differ by the particular sport. Obviously, chess and swimming are going to have very different rules. And so the political system is going to need some time to sort this out and understand how you balance the needs of trans people with the needs of straight athletes. 
And I think our systems are really good at that. They can do that over time if they're given the space. The problem is that right now, as you just said, Patrick, we have radical activists on both sides of this issue who don't want to have that conversation. They want to go straight to the extreme perfect state of their own imagination. I agree. And I do fear that because so much of our life is now in public with social media, we've reached the point where performance politics is really all that matters. We play, we mug for the camera, and that's really the audience that we're looking to appease. And so it makes creating compromise very difficult. Not just social media. I've been spending a lot of time past couple of years during pandemic, talking to my evangelical friends, and they're seeing all the same patterns in their own churches, in their own communities. They're seeing the partisan polarization of a lot of the evangelical world. They're very distressed about that. So it's not just Twitter. It's closer to home than that. Absolutely. And I mean, evangelicalism is in a process of fracturing right now. I'm not quite sure what the new version of evangelicalism will be, but the old big tent approach seems to be breaking down. In your book, like you said, The Constitution of Knowledge, you are talking about how do we come to know things. And in fancy philosopher speak, we call this epistemology. But maybe we could just start there and you could explain to our listeners, what does epistemology mean and why should it matter to everyday people, even if you're not Socrates? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not Socrates. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that tries to understand how do we know the difference between what's true and what's false. It's basically the foundational branch of all philosophies. It's where Plato starts thousands of years ago. And it's a really hard question because we can always be wrong, yet think we're right. It's happened to all of us. We can be deceived about evidence. Uh, if we think God has revealed the truth to us, well, maybe we were hearing from Satan. Or maybe we just misunderstood what God was trying to tell us. I think Jesus often felt that way about his own disciples. So it's a really hard problem. Epistemology deals with that. The particular angle that I look at in my book, The Constitution of Knowledge, available at fine bookstores everywhere, is called, if you're ready for even more syllables, social epistemology, which says, okay, there's how individuals, John and Patrick, make up their own minds. But societies, also communities, have to have certain common understandings about facts, or at least how you reach facts. Like a lot of people think Elvis Presley is still alive. Well, okay, do we send him a social security check? That's a public issue, right? Do we evacuate a town? where a hurricane is coming if the president has taken a Sharpie to a weather map and changed the course of the hurricane. A lot of lives are at stake. So we have to have ways as a society and as a country to reach some understandings about some core truths. And that's hard. Oh, it's very difficult, especially in this cultural moment. You know, I used to think about knowledge as something that individuals have. So for example, I know that plants create energy via photosynthesis, or I know that if I flush my toilet, the bad stuff goes away, right? I have all of this knowledge in my head. But understanding your argument, I think, takes us to a different place, that in reality, creating and storing knowledge is rarely an individual task. So, I mean, maybe let's dig in a little bit more here. How do human collectives create and store knowledge? Well, there's the traditional way, and then there's the constitution of knowledge. The traditional way would usually be probably in fairly small groups, usually tribes, might be much bigger, might be a nation. And naturally, being humans, we would disagree about stuff. And that can lead to out-and-out -out war, schism, 
all kinds of bad things. So typically a society would appoint an authority like a priest or a Politburo, or it might have a sacred text like the Bible or it would have an oracle. And it would say, this is what we believe. And if you don't believe this, you don't belong here, or maybe we kill you. And then you get 200,000 years of wars between different groups with different authorities. And you get, for example, 150 years of war in Europe between Protestants and Catholics, and also among Protestants over what's true and what's false. That's not a very good way of doing it. It leads to ignorance and violence and oppression. About you know, three to 400 years ago, some people come along with a very different idea. And that idea is liberalism. It's the same basic idea that we also see in democracy and in capitalism, which is, well, suppose we decide that the person deciding about truth is no one in particular. We're not going to have a central authority anymore, but we are going to have some rules, some processes, which we're going to make everyone go through in order to decide collectively as a group what's true. What are those rules look like? Well, for example, no one gets to end the conversation. No one has the power to say, you shut up, I'm right. If you keep talking, you're going to jail. So that's over. So now you're having an endless conversation. And then the second thing you do is you say, you're going to have to bring evidence and argument in such a way that anyone else in the world can also inspect that evidence and argument and see if you're right. Perform their own experiment. Repeat your experiment. Look at your logic. And then you get a bunch of other rules which we don't need to talk about. But if you have those two rules, you're going to get a big network of people hunting for each other's mistakes. You're going to be pitting my bias against your bias. You're going to be forced to present evidence in a way where I can check it. I'll have to do the same for you. Others will be in the same process. This turns out this global network of people and institutions looking for each other's mistakes revolutionizes the human species. I'm serious. It's transformative because it takes us from small tribes that are basically ignorant, relying on authorities, to a global community now, a constellation of millions and millions of minds working collectively without a leader on building the reality that we call objective knowledge. That's the knowledge that put the vaccine in my arm that's protecting me right now. That's the system that decoded the COVID virus over a weekend. I mean, this thing is phenomenal. It lets us function two orders of magnitude above our natural capacity as a species. And that's what the constitution of knowledge is. It's the rules that we agree to, to be part of that process so that knowledge can move forward. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, 
Again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I don't know if you used the metaphor of hacking, but I can't help but use it. It's almost as though we've hacked the human tribal instinct by creating institutions whose moral norms and values, instead of pointing them towards tribalism, are instead pointing them, really, it's not against tribalism, it's a new form of tribalism, where the values are what you just said, disconfirmation, the seeking of truth. Well, I just have to stop you there because it's definitely not tribalism. Tribalism says, here's what we believe if you want to be one of us, period. Constitution of knowledge doesn't do that. It says there are going to be some rules that you agree to follow, but they won't define a tribe. In fact, we're pluralists. Constitution of knowledge, this whole process I described, only works if people disagree. That's a huge misconception. We all have to have the same facts. We'll never have the same facts. We wouldn't want to. Knowledge comes from disagreement, but it's structured disagreement. I can't just say, remember the old Saturday Night Live routine, Patrick, you ignorant slut, you're wrong because God said so, or whatever. That's a first for the podcast. (laughs) You can Google it. I didn't make it up. It's a famous Saturday Night Live parody. I'm going to have to talk to you and you're going to have to talk to me and others in certain structured ways. Like you're going to have to set out, here's the reason I think this and here's my evidence. And I'll have to respond to that. And that creates this process of structured persuasion. That's not a tribe. That's more like a community based on rules. I think when I use the word tribe or why it's even difficult there is because what I think you're describing and I strongly agree with is that we need a different thing for the community to form its sense of solidarity around. And instead of forming it around some of the things that you've mentioned in the past, that sense of solidarity seems to be forming around some of the rules and principles you laid out. No personal authority, no final say, principle of disconfirmation. And if you and the community value people who follow the rules, and that's what it means to be well-respected or well-established inside of the community, that solidarity is going to continue to press you, it would seem, in the right direction. And so that's why it feels like a hack of that internal tribalism, which says, I want to have solidarity with the group. I want to be one with the group. Well, now you can get that, but you get it in a way that doesn't create sex. That's brilliantly put. You know, a good way to think about this, just an analogy is Adam Smith and the idea of capitalism, free markets, basically kind of hacks humans in the sense that it says, okay, humans are selfish. We're all greedy. We're greedy. We're self-interested. Maybe we can hack that to make it socially useful. Well, the Constitution of Knowledge says humans fundamentally disagree. We're pig-headed. We don't change our minds easily. We're swayed often by dumb arguments and biases. Maybe we can hack that by pitting those arguments and biases against each other and using them as the energy of disagreement to actually produce truth. It's when you think about it, it's an incredibly revolutionary, sophisticated idea.
And in your book, you speak specifically about James Madison, I believe, and his insights. And in particular, the fact that politicians and parties are by nature ambitious. Humans, (laughs) by nature, are ambitious. And that two or more ambitious people could keep each other in check over time. In other words, when you have this kind of countervailing powers, it ends up forcing compromise and creating common ground that can protect people against tyranny. So maybe share, why was that insight such a groundbreaking insight? And how do we see that play out in the Constitution? of knowledge or within the reality-based community. So for anyone who missed that day in civics class, if there still is civics class, James Madison (laughs) was the founding father who was most responsible for the structure of the U.S. Constitution. And I believe probably the greatest political genius who ever lived. Also a working politician, not just a theorist. He was president. He was the very first Speaker of the House of Representatives, so he knew his way around politics. And Madison comes along and says, okay, we want to have a durable democracy, the Articles of Confederation, America's first effort at structuring itself after the revolution, is disintegrating very fast, massive inflation, states boycotting each other. And the problem is, or a problem is, humans are naturally ambitious. We want to dominate others. We believe we're right. And often, you know, we're not power mad. We just think we have the right answer and society should go along with us. So my policy should become law and yours should not. And he says, this is fundamental and it has ultimately destabilized every previous experiment in democracy, going back to the ancient Greeks. Madison's genius is to say, what if the answer is not to repress ambition? What if the answer is to create a system of checks and balances to force ambition to counteract ambition. My ambition is pitted against your ambition through a structure that forces us to compromise. In Congress, for example, if we want to get a bill passed, if we want to get the votes, where the courts and the executive have to come to some kind of conclusion, if you spread the power around and force compromise, you can harness this ambition to actually create a system that's stable, lasts 250 years now, and dynamic, because all of these forces contending with each other give you change and progress. That's what the Soviet Union didn't have. It just stultified. Well, so at the same time, some of the same people and others have that same idea in the world of knowledge. They say, okay, all human beings are fundamentally biased and pigheaded. What do we do about that? We can't stamp out bias and pigheadedness. We pit bias against bias, and we use that energy to force people to persuade each other in order to make knowledge. I mean, you may think Elvis is alive, but we're not putting that in the textbooks until you can demonstrate that that's true to a lot of other people and persuade them you're right. Persuasion's like compromise, right? It creates this dynamic situation where even if people don't want to cooperate, they have to cooperate to make knowledge. And that's how you get this global architecture of objective knowledge that we have today. Again, when you think about it, it's an incredible invention. I call it Madisonian epistemology. Now, we're getting into more and more syllables there. (laughs) You keep adding syllables before it. Yeah, I keep adding syllables. 
You made a great point about how ambition against ambition forces persuasion. And in the absence of persuasion, there really is only force. And I actually think this is also a historically deeply Christian insight. Now, I'm not saying Christians throughout history have followed this insight very well, but if you go back to the earliest days of Christianity with the Apostle Paul and Jesus, what we see them choosing to do, even though they could have done otherwise time and time again, is refusing to implement force and instead leaning on the power of persuasion to persuade people of their perspective that I'm right and you're wrong. And I think that's the beauty of James Madison's system is that it's not dominated by force. There has to be persuasion. He obviously didn't live to see today. He didn't live to see the social media era, the media era, you know, what Daniel J. Bornstein is called the age of the image, where now there's a new thing to have an ambition towards, which is not the ambition to legislate or to be an important legislator, but the ambition to be famous, the ambition to be a celebrity, the ambition to mug for your favorite cable news channel that likes your particular party. And so I wonder, I mean, do you think there's a way in which his system is breaking down in this moment where it seems like we have legislators who are more interested in the theatrics of politics and what that gives them for their personal brand and reputation than they are in the process of actual legislating and compromising and persuading? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's a problem. And you guys on this show have had the country's most sophisticated and important thinker who's working on that problem. His name is Yuval Levin. The founders in our democratic system, they put Congress at the heart of it. It's first among equals of all our institutions. And it's irreplaceable in American society because Congress is the only place where as a nation, a whole nation, not just a state or a school board, but where representatives of the people come together to negotiate and bargain about the really difficult social questions. And that has to work because if that doesn't work, the power flows to other places that are less democratic and less accountable, less representative, places like the courts, the bureaucracy, overly strong presidency. And if Congress doesn't work, polarization begins to infect the whole society, because if we can't have these conversations and settle these problems in Congress, we start turning to media feuds, for example. We start politicizing our churches and synagogues. So Congress is at the heart of this. The founders assumed that Congress would check and balance the other branches because it would want to make laws because that's how it exerts its power. But what if you get into a world where more and more people want to get to Congress not to make laws, which requires compromise, but to make themselves famous, to build their brand? Famously, Madison Cawthorn, a representative young guy from North Carolina, bragged that he was not hiring aides who could legislate. He was hiring communications people who could tweet. Now, he just got kicked out in a primary election because his behavior was so outrageous. But increasingly on the left and the right, we see politicians, especially in Congress, who are not interested in doing the actual work. And when Congress retreats from that and becomes a place for performance, the whole country's in trouble. And obviously, you see the legal community or the lawmaking community as, I think, part of this reality-based community. It seems as though we're moving away <laughs> from that, where I'm not so sure my congressman or congresswoman is a member of the reality-based community. I'm not sure that they believe there's no final say. I think they might actually have some people who they say get final say in their party, that there is no personal authority. It seems like those rules are breaking down, and that's deeply troubling for me as an American who has to live in this social moment. What do you think is the 
path forward for Congress? I mean, how do we change this? Or is it just, we don't have an answer and we're going to mourn it here and move on. Someone turn off the lights after we leave. Well, before we come to Congress specifically and remind me to come back to that, I just want to say something to your broader point about, is it all breaking down? I'm not sure you'll find this reassuring. Maybe you won't, but Madison's system of checks and balances where you have to compromise in order to make policy is deeply counterintuitive. People don't naturally like to compromise, right? The system of the constitution of knowledge that requires people to persuade each other, even if they're sure they're right, deeply counterintuitive. Like no one in particular is in charge of deciding what goes on the textbooks. I should decide what goes on in the textbooks or my pastor should. So these systems that the founders of both sides of knowledge and politics gave us are always under siege. They're always under threat. They're always counterintuitive. And I and you, I think you're a bit younger. I'm 62. You look about, I don't know, 12 to me, but. (laughs) I was excited for the guess. You just went way under. That's good. Let's stick with 12. (laughs) You're a bit younger than I am. And then your kids and their kids all through eternity are going to have to get up every morning and defend these systems we're talking about from scratch. Because think about it, it's so crazy. The idea that speech, for example, and ideas that are bigoted, biased, wrongheaded, offensive, heretical, blasphemous, that that should not only be allowed by the government, but protected by the government. This seems like a crazy idea. Its only virtue is that it has created peace, freedom, and knowledge. So what's happening today is serious. It's not new. Hamilton warned us about demagogues who would hack the system of politics. Lincoln warned us about that. They saw it coming. So our job, you and me, is not to give up, not to give up. There is tons of strength left in these systems that we're talking about because people hate to live in a world where compromise isn't possible and they can't get along and they can't tell what's true and what's false. So that's the big question. Don't give up. Don't be demoralized. On the specifics, there's tons of things that Congress can do, and it's doing some of them, and we can talk about those specifics if you want to. Different kind of conversation, though. It's like more policy. Let's leave it off, because I do think that's really interesting. And, you know, personally, I just want them to take all the cameras out. I think that might solve a lot of things. You were roll call votes, yeah. More private deliberations. That's one of the things that's being talked about. Which seems counterintuitive to people. (laughs) Yet again, I think this is fascinating. And really, I think it's what even you and I are doing right now. You know, we're coming from probably two very different worldviews and camps. And yet we have areas of alignment and agreement, especially in this sphere of the constitution of knowledge. And we're able to discourse and come to compromise and have a conversation that's respectful and dignifying. And I think that's so key in this moment where neither group wants you to talk to either group. And one of the things that does encourage me, I don't know if you read the more in common study that showed that the wings of both these groups, I think it's 8% on the far left and 6% on the far right. This is a minority of the United States population. It has an outsized loud voice. And once I started hearing that and realizing that they're also mostly white, mostly educated, upper middle-class individuals, I started to realize this is a inter white war between a very small group of people. And if we can help keep them on the fringes, we can actually get to a good place in the center where we're having healthy discourse again. I wish I could get more people to understand what you just said, because it's so important. And I wish I could get more people who are on the left and on the right and good people who really believe firmly that they're pro-life or pro-choice and that the stakes are very high. I wish I could get them to understand that the answer to disempowering the crazy people on the other side is not to be crazy and extreme yourself. It's to empower the center. That exhausted majority of people 
like you, I think, and like me, who are tired of constant polarization, politicization by people who are serving themselves. They're getting famous or making money by doing this stuff, which brings us to the point where we started the conversation on the issue of gender and trans and all of that. The question before us is, can we re-empower this broad but often underrepresented center, which is where the work will actually get done of figuring out the right answers? That's really the mission. And so when I understand why conservatives and evangelical world are deeply disturbed by aspects of critical race theory and genderqueer theory and all these other things that seem to be bombarding them in the culture. But the answer to that is not to become radicalized, not to take MAGA to the pews and the pulpit. The answer is to figure out, okay, who can we work with in the center to build a coalition of sanity. Sign me up for that coalition. <laughs> I want to be a part of the. Well, you can do it. You know, I was a little sardonic about your age. I apologize. But your generation, it's up to you guys. You know, we messed it up. I'm a baby boomer. You know, we should just die and go away. <laughs> Gosh, that's a dark thought right there. I love the baby boomers. And- natural death, the natural. Death. <laughs> Good. I was like, I want the baby boomers around. We should meet our maker and go to whatever our celestial reward is. I don't think it'll be good. I do have hope because I do think there's this exhausted center and there's a lot of incentives against speaking right now. There's a lot of incentives inside of our media environment that make it difficult to speak because it's hard to gain a hearing in this moment. And so there's lots of great conversations to have there. What I would love to do is with our last 15 minutes, shift this towards something maybe a little more spicy and interesting, because obviously you and I do have some areas of disagreement. More spicy than Madisonian epistemology? (laughs) Nothing could be more spicy than that. No, what I would love to talk about is you draw pretty firm lines around what's included within the reality-based community. And as a Christian reading your book, I can't help but think at multiple points, wow, you know, you're actually describing a healthy church or a healthy, what we would call ecclesiology or theology of how humans do church together. So for example, we talked about the need for competing powers, no final say, no personal authority. And you go back to the New Testament and you look at the early church, I think there's a strong argument to be made. It's actually epitomizing that in many different ways. There is no lead apostle. In fact, we have recorded in the New Testament multiple fights (laughs) that happened between the early apostles over all kinds of different issues where they had to come to compromise and they had to persuade one another. In other words, we're seeing a lot of the principles, as much as we might want to say, oh, this is the last 200, 300 years, I can go back 2,000 years and say, well, you know, you can even look at early church councils and you see some of these same principles coming out. But obviously you put religious claims and Christian or church institutions outside of the reality-based community. So I just want to ask why. What a great question. No one's asked it in quite that way. So let's define a few terms to make it a little bit less abstract. Yeah. This term reality-based community, what do I mean by that? I don't just mean you and me going around in our daily lives, trying to perceive the world in a correct way. All humans do that. And that's great. The reality-based community are the people and institution whose job it is, whose actual profession it is to find knowledge. They're paid to do that usually. And they go to school for years to learn how to do that. And they join credentialing organizations that commit them to principles. Who am I talking about? There are four major elements of the reality-based community. The first, of course, science, research, academia, universities, NIH, Brookings, the think tank where I am. The second is mainstream media, journalism, 
which I'm a journalist by profession. That's where I came up. And that's where you learn all the things like, you know, run corrections if you're wrong, use multiple sources, all of that. A lot of professional work that has to get done there. The third super important law, the idea of a fact actually originates in law, not science, because law predates science. And it turned out in order to make reasonable judgments, courts needed to have facts. So they set up an adversarial process of people presenting evidence and arguments so they could reach facts. Fantastic. And the fourth is government. As we know from 20th century history, if government is not reality-based, if it can simply invent its own facts, its own version of reality, government becomes capricious and oppressive and totalitarian. And that's why it's super important to have a president who does not, for example, claim that he can unilaterally alter the facts about a hurricane. People get killed if you do that. So those are the four major pillars of the reality-based community. There are others like you know museums and consultancies, all of that. But so as Joe Biden would say, here's the deal about the reality-based community. That's what those people do for a living when they're in fact-seeking, knowledge-building mode. But here's the great thing about the constitution of knowledge. The U.S. Constitution does not structure our conversations at the dinner table or what we say at church. It's limited to a very particular sphere of public policy. Same is true of the Constitution of Knowledge. For public policy purposes, we're not going to send Elvis that Social Security check. But for private purposes, if you want to believe Elvis is alive or even worship at the shrine of Elvis, you're welcome to do that. This system is the only system that is totally non-totalitarian and that it creates space for individuals in their own lives to have their own opinions and beliefs, including religious opinions and beliefs. That's one of the great breakthroughs of this thing. And it's why it's so important that religious people defend the constitution of knowledge because all of these other systems that we talk about, and you mentioned some of them, extreme wokeness in one of them, they want to intrude into every region of everybody's life and say, no, you can't believe that. No, you can't say that. So that's why I'm glad to be on this show, because I can proselytize for the constitution of knowledge to the religious folks who depend on the space that it gives them to believe. Absolutely. So do metaphysical claims have any place within the constitution of knowledge? Every claim does. Ethical claims do. Claims about right and wrong. Claims about beauty. We can have one of these structured, decentralized conversations about anything, and we can do it productively. We can have moral progress. It's not just talking about facts. It's about talking about, I don't know, is slavery wrong? In a several hundred year conversation about that it was structured. You had to provide evidence and arguments. And there was some very powerful evidence and arguments presented. Constitution of knowledge drove us toward understanding the fundamentally indefensible and inhumane nature of slavery. I believe the constitution of knowledge liberated gay people from the realm of oppression and ignorance that we were living under. You know, we pointed out to people, we're not fundamentally different. We just have this one difference. We're not a threat to anybody. And pretty quickly, people saw that that was the case, that we had the evidence on our side. So yeah, these can be applied to anywhere. And even seminaries use the constitution of knowledge, even though they're not performing experiments, they're writing articles saying, here's why we think this is true. What do you think? I think that's what I'm getting at. I almost wonder if I'm missing a piece of the puzzle here as I read your book. To use the slavery example, if you go back to the era before the civil war 
and you went to a church in the South or a church in the North or a very small number of churches, you would have likely seen a lot of different things and a lot of different Christians teaching different things. In the South, you would have heard a pro-slavery message. The Bible's pro-slavery. Here's all my Bible verses to prove the point. If you went to the North, you would have heard something that said, well, what's happening in the South is medieval and it's barbarism. The Bible's probably still okay with some form of slavery. And then in certain smaller areas, you would have found the abolitionist movement, which was a largely Christian movement, whether it was Frederick Douglass or John Brown. I mean, this was a movement that was fundamentally rooted in their reading in particular of Genesis 1, the Exodus, the book of Philemon, some other passages that really informed their sense of why not just this kind of slavery, but all slavery was absolutely wrong. And so they came to make a metaphysical claim about the nature of of what it means to be a human and what kind of rights a human has, although they were rooted in scripture. And so that's where I start asking, well, does that then all of a sudden not have a place in the constitution of knowledge if those metaphysical claims are coming out of a sacred text or a scripture? Well, of course, you had sacred texts on both sides. You had Christians on both sides. Um, people who favored slavery and racism have this idea, you know this better than I do, but this weird reading of the Bible involving Ham Yes, it's disgusting. And they cited Paul. What is it? Slaves obey your masters. Mm -hmm. So what had to happen to end slavery was a conversation among Christians. And of course, it all broke down in the Civil War, right? So the system collapsed and we did this a horrible way. 750,000 Americans died because we couldn't sustain that conversation. But that conversation was moving toward abolitionism because in that argument among Christians, it began to become pretty clear that Abraham Lincoln had the better argument and the better evidence. Stuff like, would you want to be a slave? So why would you wish that on anyone else? That's a pretty hard argument to answer. And there was another asymmetry, which you might have mentioned, which is there were two ways of dealing with this. The North, the anti-slavery side, wanted to have this conversation because they knew they would win it. The pro-slavery side, the slave power, did not want to have this conversation and passed severe censorship laws wherever they could throughout the South, shutting down abolitionists, punishing people who believed it. They even tried to export that to the federal level so that nationally you could not advocate abolitionist views. They failed at that, but they did succeed at intimidation. They would go and burn down the presses and even lynch people abolitionists. So they were trying to silence the debate because I think they knew in a free and open debate, they couldn't win it. Yeah. Well, so here's maybe my slightly different read. It wasn't merely that the North had a better argument. It's also that they actually had the better reading of scripture. I mean, you could go over across the pond to England and look at their abolition movement, very similarly <laughs> led by very devout evangelicals at the time. And they convinced people that my reading of scripture and what scripture says is actually superior to yours. I mean, you brought up the ham example. Part of the reason why I say it's so disgusting is it's just morally repugnant, but it's also disgusting because it's a gross, gross, gross. I mean, there's no possible way you could read the Bible and come to the conclusions that they came to unless you were coming at it ideologically. You're trying to draw something out of the text that wasn't there. And so where I'm going with this is saying part of how the abolition movement moved forward was by convincing Christians inside of largely Christian nations at that point that this is what the Bible says and therefore we should go forward with it. And part of why I think this is so critical is let's just say we lived in a world where there was no Bible. 
where there was no sacred text that was informing this. You go back to whether it's Plato or Aristotle, I mean, all kinds of classical thinkers. The idea that slavery was anathema, that slavery is a wicked, evil thing. Does it come out of any tradition that doesn't have the Bible somewhere in the picture and at its root? And if it doesn't, is there a risk to pulling the Bible out of, in a sense, the conversation of the constitution of knowledge? Well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe the Bible is a sacred book, but I also think the Bible is a book with a lot of wisdom in it that deserves deep respect. There are also some pretty horrifying things in it. You know, the slaughter of the Canaanites is pretty hard to defend. So I think it's important that these conversations be deeply informed by the wisdom of the Bible, but it doesn't end there, right? Because people don't agree on what the Bible says. Here's a proposition for you. I think the idea that the Bible condemns loving relationships between homosexual people, of the same sex, I think that's a misreading of the Bible. Yet I think that 95% of Christians today in the evangelical world will say that that's the correct reading of the Bible. We disagree, but I wouldn't be surprised if 50 or 100 years from now, a lot of people are saying, gee, how did we get that so wrong? And that's going to come out through the kind of structured and careful and empirical debate that's brought so much other moral progress. And I guess I especially want to bring that message to Christians and religious people for exactly the reason you said, that bringing that ethos, the constitution of knowledge is ethos, not all its techniques. You're not going to have lab experiments, of course. But bringing that ethos of pitting bias against bias and testing your beliefs, making sure there's diverse opinion in the room so you don't get trapped by your own presupposition, that is the best thing for keeping religion reality-based and humane and thriving and dynamic. I absolutely agree. And I actually think you nailed it on the head because we don't live in a moment, at least in the church, where anyone has a final say or someone has personal authority, where we have to debate and talk about these ethical issues in light of what the Bible says. That's a debate that is currently ongoing that you brought up and will, I assume, continue to happen as you know time goes forward. You know, it bothers me a bit that so much of what I'm hearing from my evangelical friends is people are now choosing their church communities based on, do you agree with my political beliefs? Wouldn't it be more interesting to to choose your church community based on, do we disagree about our political beliefs, but agree that there's a larger mission here, which is to better understand the word of God? Wouldn't that be a healthier way to approach it? I fundamentally agree. That's why we have this podcast. (laughs) We joke that we're too conservative for liberals and too liberal for conservatives. And part of what we're trying to make is not some sort of milquetoast statement of moderacy. It's a broader statement to say that your allegiance should not be to a political party. Your allegiance as a Christian should first and foremost be to Jesus. And if it is, you're going to have an interesting way of leaning into political discourse and conversation because you're going to find that you don't really quite have a home anywhere. I feel blessed because, you know, you did come to visit our church, John, uh, because we actually have Republicans and Democrats sitting next to each other. That coalition, it's harder to hold together now than it has ever been in our history in our past. But my hope is what you just said, that we're going to have more churches where your politics aren't the defining feature of why you go to this or that church, where you can have interesting discourse like what we're having right now over all kinds of challenging ethical topics where we have to persuade one another. (laughs) I think that's a key, and I hope to see more of it in the future. Well, I hope so too. And if God hears the prayers of an atheist, he does. (laughs) I see proposition. But if he does, I hope that you guys succeed in reversing the trend that we're seeing, because If our churches and our synagogues, but especially our churches, because we're a predominantly Christian nation, if they can no longer do the work of spiritual shepherding, of bringing people together around the world, the word of Jesus, which is a radical teaching that does not fit into anyone's political program, 
if they can't bring people together, at least for those conversations, not for agreement, but for conversations, then it's like the same void that exists if Congress fails. If our churches become polarizing and sources of division, we're sunk as a society, frankly. You guys in religious world, you've got to get this right. You've got to do the job. And I'm worried that that's not happening right now. I feel the same worry, and yet I am one man doing our one small part. There was a famous rabbi who once said that when a father and son sit down to study the Torah, they become enemies, but they don't arise until they're friends. And to me, that Hmm. is a wonderful word picture of what the constitution of knowledge should look like inside of churches. And it's a picture even outside of churches, what it looks like to come together as enemies and to leave as friends. And I love this conversation with you because while I know that we probably have some serious disagreements on all sorts of different things, I feel as though I can walk away from this conversation as a friend with you who can respect and value what I think is an amazing contribution to the discourse today, which is your book, The Constitution of Knowledge. So I would just tell you, if you haven't read this book, you know, you've heard some big words today, epistemology, about four different varieties of epistemology. (laughs) Make sure to hop onto Amazon, pick up this book. You can get it as an audio book if that's your preference. I think you'll enjoy it. I don't read many books twice. This one into my I read it twice category. So that's the best possible recommendation I can give. But John, thanks so much for being on the show. Is there anywhere people can follow you or engage with your work? I have a Twitter account. I think it's John underscore Roush. And I have a website where I post some of my writings, the more important stuff, jonathanroush.com. Great. So go follow John on Twitter and you can pick up his writings there. Most importantly, I, again, encourage you to grab a copy of that book. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.